I feel absolutely blessed that the greatest competitors in the world, of which Kristen Bromley was one, if anything, were supportive of me and we would discuss how to negotiate a tricky corner together. There are four or five athletes in the world who were the best in the men's division, were the best, bar none. And overwhelmingly, they were the first to congratulate you if you beat them. I can't, I, I can't describe how important that was in terms of each one of us achieving our best versions of ourselves. Hi there, folks. It's Steve Ingham here and a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. Now, I'm a sport and performance scientist and co-founder of Supporting Champions. Supporting Champions, if you didn't know, is a performance consultancy. And so we help people who are working in performance through online courses, content and providing them with an exclusive community. If you're interested in that, go to supportingchampions.co.uk forward slash online course. And we also provide support to people who want to put a bit more performance into their world. So that's working with businesses, with education, with individuals, through speeches, through workshops and through coaching. And if you're interested in that, you can look at our website and look under speaking and coaching and mentoring. This podcast is all about trying to find out what High performance is all about speaking to people who have been there and done it, people who have researched it, people who have supported others. And my hope is that the conversations can help you with whatever you're pursuing at the moment, whatever you're working on, whether that is a particular goal or trying to make things better as you go towards that goal. It's not a case of me thinking that the content is all going to be specifically relevant. In some ways, I, I hope that the conversations can just wash over you and help you reflect. And it may well be that a conversation or a perspective or a comment or a question can just prompt a thought that allows you to think differently and allows you to take the step forward and allows you to move to action in hopefully a healthier way. This week's guest is Duff Gibson. Now, Duff won the Olympic gold medal in Bob Skeleton in, at the 2006 Turin Winter Olympics. Now, interestingly, Duff won his gold medal at the age of 39, way later than we'd expect somebody to kind of reach their peak. And Duff has an incredible story to tell about trying and trying again, testing himself in several different sports in the pursuit of finding the one that would suit him and allow him to take a shot at being an Olympian. Now, Duff shares that exploration, and with that, a clear analysis of why he wasn't suited to certain sports, ranging from reasons such as physiology to politics. But this isn't a tale of a plucky loser picking himself up from a knockback or a failure or a disappointment. What actually this is is a lesson in valuing the experience along the way, that experience above the detail, the journey above the destination. And Duff has such clarity on this philosophy that he has written a book called The Tower of Sport in which he lays his experiences bare and creates a campaign for us to be more cognizant and skillful in how we create the journey for young athletes of the future. And talking to Duff reminded me of the quote from Confucius that we all lead two lives the second one begins when you realise you only have one. 
amazing to meet you. Um, where, where are you in the world? A Calgary. Oh, you're in Calgary. Okay, so Calgary, I saw Calgary yeah. pretty much a hundred times in the book. So yeah, um, I did wonder. Yep. Um, so it is the Winter Olympic hub around? It here. is. Yeah. So I I worked with the British bobsleigh team um, hmm. through from sort of ninety eight to uh, would have been two thousand and six, maybe something like that. And um, so I went out to Calgary before the Salt Lake Games. I went out to. Uh, Park City before the Salt Lake Games. Um, right. I was I was shoved down a I was shoved down the bobsleigh track at Park City um, in 2001 and hated it. So I've got a huge amount <laughs> admiration for what you do. But um. well, you and I probably probably had the same experience because I did bobsledding for many years before I switched to skeleton, and I have done a world cup or two on the bobsled side, but ultimately switched because I was tired of, you know, you, you could be, I was a driver. Ultimately I had been in two or three, I was in two crashes where everyone went to the hospital except for me. So I thought, okay, I need to be in control. And, and your first experience there was exactly my first experience. How do you steer this thing? It's like someone shaking you and, and, smacking you in the head with a with a baseball bat or something and so I thought okay I should be driving this this is too crazy because there's (laughs) there and this is what you don't know there's only one comfortable seat in a bobsled and it's the driver's seat so I switched but ultimately I I went to skeleton because you could and I'm not implying I was but you could be the best driver and the best uh, athlete and not compete because you couldn't convince the right person to be on your team or you couldn't afford the second mortgage to get the world-class equipment. And that, all of that went away in skeletons. So that's, but you, who was it, Olsen? Who were the British drivers yeah, that's right. back then? Yeah, Sean, Sean Olsen and then Lee Johnson would have been 2002. I was also working with the women's team as women's bobsleigh came on, onto the scene in 2002. Um, that's who I was with right, in right. Park City back then. And that's just when skeletons started to come come good. I had Alex Coomer and uh, Shelley Rudman. Yeah. And you would have competed mm-hmm. against Kristen Bromley. You, yep. would have, you would have demoted him a couple of places. In, <laughs> well, it depends uh, on the Turin. race, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it worked out in my favor in a couple of times, but mostly it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, I think we're already up and running. Are you okay to just keep going? Oh, of course. Yeah, fantastic. Yep. So um, take, take me back a step or two then. So so you've already intimated the bobsleigh and then moving into skeleton. Uh, tell me a bit about your early kind of background, your athletic career and, and what kind of where have you come from? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I I did it in an unusual way in the sense that I saw the Olympics on TV and I'll give away how old I am. When I was 10 years old, I watched the Montreal Olympics on television or just about to turn 10. And I was, you know, that was Nadia Komanichi and Alexiev and Bruce Jenner. And, you know, there are many aspects of it that I still remember. And I thought I have to be a part of this. And I didn't, I didn't, you know, what was unusual was I didn't care what sport 
I think Lizzie Arnold said something. That's another one of your podcasts that That's I right. listened yeah. to. And she said almost the same thing. I wanted to be a part of it. I didn't care what it was. I was a serial monogamist for four or five years at a time when I went through the different sports thinking each time. Think, and it started in high school with wrestling. And I was a city champion a couple of times, but it was clear that the, the top, top uh, competitors were better than me. And so I had an uncle who went to the 84 Olympics. I had an uncle whose name is Ted Gibson, who was the seven seat, seven seat for Cambridge in 1986. He went to the 84 Olympics, then he went to Cambridge after that to take his master's in computer science. And that was one of the few, at the time, Oxford was on this huge winning That's streak right. in the boat race. And they... They won for Cambridge, and I think that was, it was, I was in first year university, so it would have been the spring of 86. Uh, so I wanted to follow, so when I was in university, I took up rowing, and I wanted to follow in his footsteps, but there was no lightweight back then Okay, yeah. Uh, at the Olympics, and I, I am, you know, I'm 210 in terms of a weight now, but I'm 5'11 and a half, and I, I really gained a lot of my mass and so on back then. And, and so you, as a lightweight, you have to be really exceptional. Redgrave talked about someone who was on the national heavyweight rowing team who was legitimately a lightweight. And you have to be off the charts. Good to do that. And I wasn't. Yeah. So then I, I moved to Calgary right after the 88 games and had just watched the speed skating, was fascinated with it. And I thought, this is a much, long, much more long-winded answer than you were probably hoping for. But uh, right. I thought to myself, uh, you have the, the 500 meters and you have the 10,000 meters in speed skating. So I'm going to find somewhere in there that is the right mix for my genetic makeup. And I did that for a while, did that for five years, was a, clearly was a sprinter, but again was <coughs> provincial champion, but not nearly good enough to represent Canada. And from there I went, I had a, a buddy who was a bobsled coach and they needed an extra guy and within... Within a season, I was ranked higher in bobsleigh than I was in, scale, uh, sorry, rather uh, speed skating. So I made that switch, and then eventually got tired of the politics and waiting my turn, and found the one that was that suited my strengths and didn't penalize me for my weaknesses, which was skeleton. And so that's the roundabout. You know, I was 33 when I made it to skeleton, but I had gone through all these other experiences and training methods and learning about myself and what I responded to and didn't respond to in a physical training sense. And so I was definitely a different person when I got there, but it exactly matched my strength and weaknesses. So oh, that's wow. how I got there. So that's, I mean, that's just a lesson in exploration and persistence, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, not not many people in the world can say they found their sport that they wanted to be good at, a, a, an athletic sport as well. They found it at 33. That's pretty exceptional. Yeah, well, the way I say it is I'm, I'm probably one of the few people who graduated university never having heard of the sport I would eventually win an Olympic medal in. I wonder oh, I if love Lizzie that. Arnold. Yeah. I wonder if Lizzie Arnold would fit in that category. Lizzie, I don't want to ask. I tell, thought, tell I, us. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I thought I might be the only one, so I I don't want to ask her. <laughs> what um, what gate? What did you benefit from 
having gone to a bit of rowing, a bit of speed skating, or long it's long track speed skating, presumably, was it? Um, yeah. And then bobsleigh. In this pursuit of, I just want to compete and I want to find that level and test myself against. But, but what did the sort of exploring different sports offer you? Well, it, it taught me about me more than anything, I would say. And it's, it's uh, the ro- you know, from the mental side. And I refer to rowing examples a couple of times in the Tao of Sport. And one of them for me was a moment in time when, you know, it was we were at the Canadian version of the Henley Regatta. And, uh, you know, it was co- it was raining and it was very miserable out. And I was thinking, oh, it's our, you know, it's our third event, third, he- you know, we're worn out and it was really crappy. And uh, I don't remember the nature of the race or what event it was, but I remember very distinctly that it was going to happen. And I was I could have been I would have been happy to be somewhere else. And then it was canceled. And I immediately did this 180 degree turn and I was right pissed off that we weren't going to get the chance to race and have take a crack at this uh, Canadian championships. And that was a really good, you know, so every sport, every experience along the way was a lesson. And that one was from rowing and maybe physiologically, because it was the most aerobic sport that I ever did. Everything else was power um, or peak power or sprinting. Uh, it still taught me, imagine, and I use that for the rest of my career. Imagine, you know, if you feel a little bit of nerves right now, okay, well, imagine if you weren't allowed to go. Imagine if you had a, a, an equipment malfunction and you were out, you'd be heartbroken. And if you, that's sort of a strategy that I, I use to allow myself to just turn how I was thinking of things. So the, the journey that I took was learning, but it was mental. It wasn't just physical. It was physical for sure in the training methods. And, and uh, you know, it helped me to appreciate what my strengths and weaknesses were in a physical sense. But every step of the way was fun. It was a lesson on the mental side of sport. And uh, it, was, it was allowing me to build up until I was ready to fit the one I was destined to arrive at, is how I look at it. I'm hearing uh, an element of uh, resilience, uh, appreciation, and I suppose that character development that you write about in the book that that was almost equipping you to take on the 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 journey. I mean, I, I remember some of the bobsleighers used to be such pure peak power athletes, and they used to break some of our bikes. And um, <laughs> I remember putting a couple of the guys on uh, for a gait analysis on the treadmill and they had to do six minutes of running to, to look at death. And, and they were like, you are joking. Well, I am never run six <laughs> minutes in my life. So to, yeah. hear, to hear a, a former bobsleigh talk about aerobic uh, endurance <laughs> is, is quite an alien thing. You've got, you've got range there, that's for sure. Um, sorry, my point was about so you're saying you're saying it's not so much the physical aspect, but actually you you were equipped in terms of your capability to be a sports person. I think so. And you know, when I wrote the book, I was very retrospective, obviously. And I think so much of my mental fortitude, or whatever you want to call it, for 
succeeding or thriving in a competitive environment came from when I was very young. Now, all those steps along the way, they, you learn something, you pick up a strategy here and there, and it's all part of it. But so much of the foundation, like that's what I found as a coach, is occasionally you'll, and, and this is true of sport and outside of sport, you run into someone who thinks the world is against them, and they're almost their own worst enemy. And I found that as a coach, athletes like that were very, very difficult to change in terms of a mindset. And, I, and I've had this conversation with other Olympic, in some cases, Olympic level coaches who would tell you the same thing. The mindset is a very, very difficult thing to change when you're 25, when you're 30, let alone when you're 18 or, or, or so. So it's, it, what, yes, is your, to, the answer to your question in terms of the journey. But there's one other thing that I wanted to point out that my example or my story has been referred to as an example of great perseverance. And you use the term perseverance. And part of my mindset is that it's not perseverance at all if you loved every minute of it. You know, so that's, that's the perspective that I always tried to keep. I'm not, a, I'm not grinding my, through my days in a factory somewhere uh, or serving time in a prison sentence. Even when I was, you know, rowing is one of those where it's, it's really pain tolerance. It's really, we're going to grind it out. What are, we, what's, what are we doing in today's workout? Uh, it's more pain. Okay. <laughs> you know? Pain repackaged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're going to go shorter <laughs> intervals of pain, but there'll be less rest in between the pain today. That's what we're doing differently. Uh, it was still something that you become so addicted to and, and love to be a part of when you're surrounded by the other people who are. I, I suppose um, it's interesting to sort of hear you say that, but I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to hear where that came from for you um, to, to experience loss, setbacks, mistakes, non-wins, shall I call them, you know, where you, you've tried, but you haven't quite hit the, the top notch. Um, to have that, that wherewithal, but also the, I guess the resourcefulness to be able to say, okay, no, I take the lessons out of this. You know, it's not a mistake. It's a, it's a chance to learn. Did you always have that? Is that something that you were coached into? Um, is that something that you had the open-mindedness to adopt in your career? I, th I think so. And I think, again, that's what ties back to the upbringing because sport for me was always, as a youngster, was always the sun is shining. You're on the couch in front of the television. Are your legs broken? What is the problem? Go outside. Um, it was never an option. It was never, oh, do you, what do you feel like doing today? It's like, get out of the house. And I l luckily lived on a block that had several kids who were of my exact age, let alone near my age. And we played street hockey was the main, the main sport that I probably pay, played the most hours of. But it was, I, I look back on it and I think that was probably in terms of establishing a growth mindset. And I'm sure that's something you've spoken about on this podcast many times. That, that was it because we played for hours at a time. We played with great intensity. I think back of, you know, 
you know, run for two hours in a row. I suppose that's what soccer players do, except it's a smaller field. So there's not really the same time off if the ball is far away from you. Um, that's probably, I probably just said something really disrespectful to soccer players. Or, <laughs> they don't know what I'm talking about because I called it soccer. In, in, terms of the, in terms of the boundaries of disrespect in football, that's, that's quite a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know someone who's, who talked about the aerobic capacities of s- football players. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty damn impressive. So yep. football gets slagged a lot in North America. And I, I, my defense of it is throw a ball up in the air and before it hits the ground, kick it as hard as you can and see if you can hit that giant goal. And it's almost impossible. Yeah. So whenever I, that's my limited, lame attempt at a makeup <laughs> with football players. And I've, I've completely lost where I was. You, you were talking about that kind of nurturing of your own growth mindset of valuing right. the experience as much as the outcome. Right. So in street hockey for hours and hours, most days after school as a kid, never gave a second thought to the score. And now when I learn about growth mindset, I think to myself, that was the perfect playing ground because it was all about development. It was all in our minds we imagined every goal was the overtime winner for the Stanley Cup, and so, which is part of the fun. But the, the fun in the moment was really the process, and we played really hard, and we were probably as fit as we would ever have been in our lives because the challenge was the fun part and trying to score. And there's one actually moment when we did keep score and that was when we only had one net so we did sort of a king of the court kind of a situation where we would have three teams and one goalie would stay the goalie and two teams would play a game to three goals and the winner would stay on and the the loser would sub out and if someone would win three nothing we would change the teams so what what's the explanation for that we wanted it to be as even as possible because we had a, rec- a recognition in elementary school that that was more challenging and therefore, and that was our goal and that was more fun. And so I think that, uh, you know, as I am at the end looking back of my competitive career, at least, I think the if you just as a, as a mantra, as a formula you as often as you can make it about you challenging you your personal growth that that's the definition of a growth mindset and if in in an individual sport let's say or a small team sport like rowing how do you get to the top well it's it's not by consoling yourself as a 12 year old that you beat other 12 year olds it's always to think, oh, can I get a little better and a little better? And you're ultimately dreaming about what you might achieve down the road. How do you do that? Well, you don't worry about, you don't, as a grown-up, I don't impose, I'm happy when you win, I'm sad when you lose on my kids because I want them to think, oh, that was great. We lost, but that was a wonderful experience because we elevated our game and we were close to a better team. That's that's sort of what I learned that, that 
my parents literally kicking me out of the house and the environment I had in my neighborhood established that really early on. And that probably is, from a mental standpoint, that probably was the single biggest uh, benefit to my career. Mm. And and you mentioned Stanley Cup and a quote in the book um, that you... It opens the chapter 15 about the journey. Uh, Randy Gregg, five-time uh, Stanley Cup winner. Medals, they go in, and they sit in your on your mantle. Or they go in your sock drawer. So so where's your Olympic gold medal? Well, I latched onto that quote because it's in a sock drawer. Is it? Is, I just thought it was something that Olympic gold medalists just make up. Uh, they all say it <laughs> so that the burglars look in the wrong place. Um, okay, so if it's in the sock drawer, that's fine. I presume what you're not doing is watching your race back and the medal ceremony and singing the national anthem every night. Um, but but what does what does that moment in Turin in 2006, winning the Olympic gold medal, what does that mean to you? The the moment in Turin was joy. Obviously, it was. Uh, a relief, frankly, because I was very old. I had for a while, and it's funny because I said to the commentator who interviewed me after, he said, I think you're the oldest gold medalist in an individual sport in Winter Olympic history. And I hadn't heard that. So I so I said, or he said that before the interview. And I said, I don't think that's true. I, I, I haven't heard that. And then I could hear the commentator yelling at an assistant in the back. And it turned out that that was true. So the, that's a long winded way of saying I was 39. I wasn't going to last another four years. My body was telling me it was, it was time for a year or two leading up to that, frankly. And so it was a relief. It was, I had the great benefit of leaving on top, which had been my dream, but it was also a realization that what was important to me didn't change at all. Like I had two Olympics and one, I finished 10th when I was ranked sixth in the world and I was hugely disappointed and one where everything went perfectly. And so I would say the one that I finished 10th at, and I, you know, this is in full appreciation of the fact that people, you know, top 10 is still very good and most people don't make their national teams. Uh, but it's based on my, I was very disappointed based on my expectation for my potential result there. And I thought I had a chance at a podium. I had just in the world cup previously, I had just won my first world cup medal and I didn't. And it, and it was, uh, it has affected how I watch an Olympics from now on, because, you know, even in Tokyo, you watch, you know, the single elimination tournaments like tennis, like, and most, most of the combat sports, you half the field goes home within 48 hours, you know, with the COVID-19 protocols, you have to be gone uh, within 24 or 48 hours of your event if you lose. And half the field is gone within 48 hours of their first competition. That's a tough thing for the point is for almost everybody. That's a really negative, heartbreaking experience for Olympians, what we consider to be the top level. For most Olympians, it's a horribly heartbreaking kind of thing. And so it has affected how I see things. But then to have everything go perfectly well beyond my expectations was also, a, oh, well, this didn't, this didn't make my life 
amazingly wonderful and different on the plus side. So that was, that made me think I am lucky that I have a foundation that helped me navigate that. And it is important and and we shouldn't drown out the voices that are campaigning for us to be a little bit more nuanced in the way that we're considering uh, sporting endeavor. Um, But you're uniquely saying that from being an Olympic gold medalist, you can compare and contrast. You can do the spot the difference and and say, well, that didn't go so well in terms of the results, but this one did go so well. But the difference in terms of the response afterwards, once you factor out any speaking gigs and opening supermarkets, that that actually in itself meant that what you're left with is you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's well put. That's very well put. But it's, I think, you know, I always feel as though I have to be careful with my words, imagining people will say, oh, well, easy for you to say, you won an Olympic gold medal. But at age 10, I decided I've got to be a part of the Olympic Games. And at age 39, or actually I hadn't turned 10, so from 9 to 39 was that pursuit. And until I got to skeleton, it was ultimately a favor. A failure, and if if people had if I had retired after I was a speed skater or a rower or what have you, people would have said, "Hey, you were pretty good in a lot of things, but never at the level of an Olympian." And you know, it, it's I I've had this conversation with other Olympians. You because you have an Olympic medal, suddenly you have credibility, deserved or not, in a certain conversation, and. My career was one, you know, I'm not implying I didn't win other races in skeleton, but it was one Olympic triumph and more or less failure. You know, I was good in other things. I was a provincial champion. I was whatever, whatever it was in other sports. But if I had gone and ended in those sports, they all, the four I did before I got to skeleton were ultimately failures from the perspective of, a gold medal is a victory. Well, there, therefore, it was a failure in everything else I did, and I moved on every time. And if I hadn't found skeleton, that's where it would have ended, like almost everybody who participates in sport. Mm. And so uh, there's no lack of failure in my you know, pedigree or development to get to that point. I was really only successful internationally in one thing, and tell me a bit about the motivations behind the book. I mean, I've I've really enjoyed going through it, and I suppose sampling it, dipping in, and and I got a really strong sense of you wanting to give back in some ways, make sport a stronger place for the participants. I'm almost imagining uh, a Sherpa who's been to Everest several times, and it's not about the climb. It's specifically this getting to the summer. It's more about the climb. Uh, it's more about the experience, taking the views. Um, tell me a bit about the motivations behind the book. Well, I, I appreciate your characterization. I mean, that paints me in a very positive light. And, there's, and I imagine eye rolling for the people that I know who are listening <laughs> to this. Like that's a that's an overly kind, perhaps, way of saying it. But 
It what, does, what do you mean? Why why did you say that? Well, it makes me sound very altruistic, and uh, if uh, if I made a million dollars, I wouldn't turn it away at the door. If I sold uh, lots of copies of the book, but the reality is that that what you're saying is correct in the sense that I benefited tremendously from my upbringing. I benefited also tremendously from the people that I competed against. And something that, uh, in, that I noted in Lizzie Yarnold's uh, podcast interview with yourself was that she talked about something that she thought would intimidate the others. I feel absolutely blessed that the greatest competitors in the world, of which Kristen Bromley was one, if anything, were supportive of me, and we would discuss how to negotiate a tricky corner together. Um, there are four or five athletes in the world who were the best in the men's division, were the best, bar none. And overwhelmingly, they were the first to congratulate you if you beat them. And that's I can't, I can't describe how important that was in terms of each one of us achieving our best versions of ourselves. And I, you know, Lizzie mentioned how she thought it was intimidating to her opponents that she would have a nap in between runs. I would find it more irritating that someone thought that they were intimidating me. <laughs> you know, and that was, that was something that I, we collectively, I would say, because it works in all directions, benefited tremendously from. And if someone, you know, your competitor actually helps you and you help them, then it comes down to may the best one win. And I have my experiences where I won two big races, uh, a world and an Olympics. And what made those truly wonderful, more than just the title, was the sincere happiness that my competitors shared and expressed to me for my victory. That's something that will, you know, is forever stuck in my memory of those events. And I feel blessed that that was the case. Now, I also have had experiences when I did. I feel like there's some great bobsledders in Canada right now. But when I went through it, it was huge testosterone. It was if I can beat you by a little bit, you're nothing. And I probably won't even talk to you. And that was not a pleasant that, you know, that was undercutting your performance on a regular basis. That wasn't building you up. And so to go to see that in its most toxic form or how I felt as an outsider, you know, when I was first starting and I was an outsider trying to work my way into the, the club, so to speak, that was a really negative environment and I wasn't at my best. And then when I switched to skeleton immediately at age 33, having spent, you know, probably the last six or seven years trying to be stronger, trying to be faster Immediately, I set a personal record at age 33 in the 30 meter sprint, which is what you know, one of our testing measures. Uh, I had lost, you know, in bobsleigh, it's of benefit to carry the weight on you instead of in the sled. So I went from 
225 as a bobsledder and eventually worked my way down to maybe 205, 206 as a skeleton athlete, but still tied at least my personal records in terms of the strength training. And I credit the environment for that. I didn't, I didn't suddenly learn a new training method. I didn't suddenly try when I wasn't trying before. I was, you know, the, the methods and what worked for me in terms of, you know, the, the Romanian, Romanian volume training. I don't know if that means anything to you, but that's a style of workout that yeah. always worked really well for me. And I spent a whole summer doing Olympic lifts. And at the end of the summer, I was no stronger. Went back to the Romanian uh, volume training and boom, my clean went up, even though I'd spent all summer working on the, the power cleans and so on. So I knew over that whole time what worked for me and what didn't work for me. It wasn't training methods. It wasn't anything else other than environment and being around people who said, hey, you could be really good at this. This is, ex- I'm excited for you. I'm giving you positive energy. It makes a huge difference. Mm. It, it is written in an authentic, humble way of, this was my experience. I didn't get this right. I found this tough. Um, other people have similar experiences that you're drawing upon, but it speaks to a campaign of why not let's try and make this journey, which can feel a bit rubbish in terms of failures, mistakes, being down on yourself. Actually, why don't we make this a little bit richer, uh, a little bit uh, of a more positive, constructive place? A lot of what I talk about is, is uh, youth sport because it's so foundational in terms of growth mindset, in terms of what we say to a kid, regardless of their performance, dictates whether they've had enough at age 10 or still love it at age 20. And so that's really important. And I, and I, that's one of my motivations for writing the book is how you, because it's sort of, it's very, you start with a foundation and my foundation is, front and center at the beginning of the book. And then it goes up to very high performance talk topics like dealing with pressure in Olympic games. And then, and then you go beyond that. And now you're a parent and you're looking back and you're hoping to contribute back, um, to the system or what was, uh, given to you. But part of my motivation for the book was watching my own kids and having them, having my youngest son who's 14 now, but when he was eight, eight years old, on the way home from a hockey game, say, man, coach takes this way too seriously. And being fascinated by what it is about that environment that is obvious to an eight-year-old that the grown-up doesn't see. And so what, and that's really psychology. We want our kids to be great. And what does that mean? We want them to be winners, when we shouldn't want them to be winners, we should want them to seek out a challenge. And as Jason Dorland said so beautifully in his book or a BBC interview was where I quoted, is actually what I quoted in my book. He says, when you draw a line in the sand and you make it about the win, you're telling them what's good enough and there's no good enough. It's really a quiet, personal challenge to see what you're capable of. And I find it fascinating, like, at the end of my career, looking back, that's a beautifully expressed truth. And I'm, it's also very interesting how if you, 
if he's on, there was one time when he was on a, a news program and then they, they put the video of his interview on their website and there are all these comments and the comments are, kids need to learn that life is tough, this kind of thing. As if his point was to try and spare kids the, the disappointment of failure in a, in, a, in a sporting contest. And like, you know, motiv- in soccer, youth soccer, you know, for U4, I can't remember what the level is. They don't keep score. You have to be a certain age before they even start keeping score. And people typically who only take a few moments to consider that think, well, you're, you're not teaching the kids that life is hard and this sort of thing. And that's not what Jason is saying is at all. In fact, he's saying the opposite. He's saying, he, he's thinking somewhere down the road. That's the benefit of not making it about the win. And in the Tao of Sport podcast, when I speak to Jason, he gives a beautiful example of a team that he coached and their goals as a team were, let's see, we've got, we only have four months, let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can achieve. And then he runs through all the other very legitimate goals that they could have chosen. Let's see if we could beat the other rival school. Well, the other rival school didn't make the final. So you could have achieved your goal and not been anywhere near your potential. So it was good that they didn't choose that goal. Well, let's see if we could do this. Let's see if we could do this time. Let's see if we can, you know, and all of those would have meant achieving the goal, would have meant a line in the sand that limited where they ultimately did get to. And so that was, that was a great conversation. I'm promoting my own podcast now. Uh, <laughs> When's it available to people to listen? Well, I'm not sure when this episode will be published, but as I'm speaking to you, it's episode one is available. Okay. Let's, let's put, I'll, yeah. put a, I'll put a link into the show notes. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And in that sense of separating out the winning and the success, separating out the summit from the climb, the outcome from the process, because if it is just about, I went down the slippery track faster than you did. If it's just about that bit, when you objectify the actual thing, you know, I often talk about you, you jumped into the sandpit further than me. Um, as a as someone who tried to use the long jump, um, <laughs> you, we've all set the, we set these rules so that we test ourselves. And as you say, there's there's no fun in, or there's no achievement when nobody turns up and you're the only one. Um, and you've got to ply yourself against others to ask those questions of yourself. It, it speaks to a level of, and you talk about it in the book, about self-awareness. Um, when, when did yep. that self-awareness come for you? Did that, was, that, was that driven by your experience as a, as a bobsledder or as a skeleton racer? Well, it's, it's interesting because I have had a few conversations around self-awareness recently. And to me as a skeleton athlete or a former skeleton athlete, it means something very specific. And you're, you're speaking more in a general sense relating to, see, when you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, what I appreciate and I'm very grateful for 
or what I appreciate is the fact that I'm nowhere without my teammates. I'm not nearly to the level that I would have been without the Kristen Bromleys of the world who are very friendly, very supportive of you, the first person to congratulate you if you beat him. That's, we're in this together. To your point, we're in this together. If it's a long jump competition with one person, you know, you finished first and last. Congratulations. What's, what's the meaning in that? And I, you know, I think, I, again, when I look at an Olympics, having seen behind the scenes for a number of Olympics now, what impresses me, and, what, and it's why the second chapter of the book is nature versus nurture, because we tend to assume that the champion is the one who's the most mentally tough. And we ignore the fact that, you know, the reality is, and what I, what I know and what you know, having seen behind the scenes for so long, is that the 50th rank person may be more mentally tough, may be more dedicated and disciplined, but there are other factors. And, you know, in the book I use Michael Phelps' comeback in the Rio Olympics. Well, how can he take two years off and come back like that? And the answer was mental fortitude and discipline and training environment and the best coaches and therapists. And all of that is completely valid. And he's also as close to, you know, if you're going to genetically engineer someone to be like a fish, it would look pretty much like Michael Phelps. You can't ignore th that reality. And so you have, you have stories of, a parent told me the other night, uh, their kids are in a swimming program, and they have the same diet and exactly the same training regimen, and they go to the same competitions. And one kid made the national team, and one just trained and trained and trained, and was, it was never going to happen. And that's the reality of it. And, and that awareness for me means that when I look at Olympic Games, I, what I'm most amazed and impressed by is not necessarily the person who wins or even finishes on the podium. It's often the, the competitor who really didn't, you know, who, who blew the doors off to make their national team and to get there and is giving the top competitor a lot of trouble when they're not in the same league in other characteristics. It's, and it's also the mental side of it, right? And the something I'm sure you, um, like it's difficult for me to even mention this without choking up a little bit for uh, a high jumper from Qatar to say, you know, why don't we both get the gold? You know, I think we'll look back on that 25 years from now and say, remember that time? That was such a beautiful moment. And it had, you know, it, uh, it's not correct to say it had nothing to do with high jump, but it was beyond it. And that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that really sticks with you. Because no matter what competition you have and who you involve, someone will win. And someone will come last and someone will be in the middle. That will never change. But achieving something that maybe you yourself didn't even think possible, that's the beautiful thing. That's the thing that doesn't happen every day. And every Olympic event, someone will win. That happens every single time. But what doesn't is someone exceeding what they thought was they were capable of. That's the beautiful thing as far as I'm concerned. That's, what's, that's where my focus, you know, I won't say that I'm not amazed by the amazing performances. There were, there were a number in Tokyo. There was a Canadian woman 
who uh, won the sprint in track cycling. Mitchell was her surname. And she was on these commercials for a same, I've referred to Lizzie three or four times now. She had a program, Girls for Gold, I think it was called. That's right. And uh, in Canada, we have this RBC, a bank, uh, the RBC training ground. And they, they just test all these athletes. They, and it's for the athlete, like Lizzie, who was super sporty and maybe super strong, but doing something other than maybe they were designed to do. And just, just a few years ago, this woman was a soccer player for her university in Edmonton, University of Alberta. And they said, you know, you're kind of built to pedal a bike. And, she, and because she was in the commercial, I thought it was already they were bragging up the fact that she had qualified to represent Canada. And then she wins gold. I was absolutely shocked by that in such a short turnaround. It speaks to the, again, that nature nurture aspect to it. But there's some great moments, whether they win or whether they don't. That's. That's the word, I think, the moments. And, and it's, it's really humbling to see the emotion, hear the emotion in your voice when you're emphasizing those, those human moments uh, with the, the high jump Italian Katari and, and them celebrating something together. As you say, it transcends sport in that sense. And so what yeah. I'm hearing from you is this, this, this understanding that you have once you've kind of been behind the camera watching a movie being shot, you know what it takes to put a movie together. You know, you, you know the steps along the way. And rather than just watching the, the movie at the end, the highlights and the explosions, and you've got deep empathy with every one person that steps on the start line that, that puts their body in their mind that's what i'm hearing from a self-awareness of i'm seeing sport through a different lens as a competitor as a fellow uh, comrade in this pursuit of trying to test ourselves yes well and having been for four sports where each time thinking this is the one I'm going to the Olympics in blank sport number one sport number two three four and just being that person who couldn't get over the line couldn't what you know what if whatever for whatever reason wasn't good enough wasn't good enough I spent a whole year in speed skating training my backside off and at the end of the year did not set a personal record so I spent a whole year, didn't improve at all. And that was the moment where I decided that I would never, you know, I had to move on if I was going to keep my Olympic dream alive. So I have total empathy for the person who struggles and struggles and does not win. I, I did. That's mostly what I did. Hmm. So, so what are you hoping from the book? What, what would be... What's, what's the ambition with it? What do you hope it gives? Well, a big part of it is uh, how we, you know, the, a big component of it is the youth sport aspect and fostering a growth mindset and, and making parents realize what you're celebrating is how good your eight-year-old is compared to other eight-year-olds and understand that 
that's not you're 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 potentially setting them up to a disillusionment or a or a uh, you're you're potentially taking the fun out of it by making it about winning and making and you make it about winning by being happy when they win that's such a an innocuous positive supportive thing i'm happy i clap i cheer when my kid does well who's going to not do that well my point is only and what a few of us do and what we do in our family is we cheer great performances so we cheer when the other team scores as well because that message is very important it's about growth i i want my kids to thrive on the challenge to want to compete against a better team and probably lose because that's how you elevate yourself and that's how you become the best version of yourself. I think that's very important and that's part of my hope for the book. And part of that message is, hey, guess what? That growth mindset, that's the most elite nine-time Olympic champion that you watch on television, that's exactly how they think. So when you're teaching your kid that it's about the win, you're actually doing the opposite of what you think you're doing. So that's, that's the awareness. And it's, you know, my goal for writing the book also is to try to acknowledge how, you know, there are, you know, what we were just talking about a moment ago, that your, the support from your teammates, from your competitors, is something I'm absolutely grateful for. And it created a wonderful and beautiful environment where we all did better than we would have. And there were five or six of us. And every, any given year, if you look at the results, it's the same couple of people. For I suppose that's true of, of any sport. But it was, I, I feel, I, if there is an altruistic part of me, it's I want to pass on how blessed I was to be in that environment and how much of a difference it made in terms of my ultimate success. And so how do you become, you know, how do you follow in the same footsteps? You, you be a part of an environment that's supportive of the people you're competing against because it frees you. It's I'm no longer worried about if someone else is cheating or whatever, because I know it's about execution. It's not about knowing something that my competitor doesn't know. It's about how well I execute. And when you can come to that, you know, that's a very advanced concept, I think. And when you can come to that conclusion, it frees you to focus on what makes a difference. And you can free yourself from worrying about what someone else did. And the environment that I came through, it was one step further. It was, well, I'm happy to help my competitor figure out, we can figure out a corner together. And many people would say, oh, that's the competition. You're helping someone to beat you. Well, I'm actually helping us both to elevate. And I feel like I experienced that. I've experienced the wrong end of that and the right end of that. And it's in terms of my mental health, it was 180 degrees different. Mm. And you're right. It has The book is, is very thoughtful in the sense that it's, um, it's quite existential in some ways. It's about us being, not doing. It's about us experiencing this, not necessarily just our head in the detail. And I think sometimes athletes can, because I'm worried about this split or this time or this power and actually just forget to lift their, their head up. I, the one thing that really drew me in 
to contact you in the first place was the very name of the book, um, The Tao of Sport. How did you come to choose that? Well, a, a lot of thinking and bouncing around of ideas, but to try and capture exactly what you just said. And the Tao, or Tao as it's properly pronounced, is a, is a Chinese word that means the path or a way of being. And that's, I thought that encapsulated what the book is about. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of interacting with your competitors and appreciating, like Kath Bishop talks about. It's not, you know, it's the be-all and end-all is not the gold medal. And again, I worry that people will say, oh, well, you won one, so it's easy for you to say. But that's a different, that's a different perspective that I that I thought very similar to, I don't know if you've read Open, uh, Andre Agassi's book, and his, or and I, I think I quote him in, in The Tao of Sport, how when he won a Grand Slam for the first time, people immediately talked about him like he was a completely different person. And of course he wasn't, and he knew that, and he had a sense of how ridiculous it was based on him winning one match that he hadn't quite won previously. And knowing that he played, you know, not even his best tennis, but someone else made more mistakes. That was a valuable lesson for him. And it affected his overall sense of the community. And I've, I had a similar experience in that way. And I wish, you know, and, and I, I'm not the guy with all the answers. This is me looking back at it and coming to these conclusions and appreciating. Like I had no sense that my you know, my parents kicking me out of the house would be a wonderful thing for my athletic career 30 years down the road. I had no sense of that at the time. But looking back, it's very obvious that that was the case. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Duff, for coming on the podcast. It's been, I uh, really appreciate the conversation. Um, I think that there is a, there's a real movement uh, in this area. And, and I think you've you've put together something that really adds value to this space that, that we do need to think differently. We, we need to look after the young people that are coming through and still pursuing sport. We need to make it better. We, need, we can't just be defaulting to shouting from the, the sidelines, just, <laughs> you know, just, just, just adopting poor behaviors because it doesn't matter, as you say, who's, who wins more goals or, or runs faster at the end of the day. They've, they've got to take, the, the lessons out of it for them to be richer, stronger people um, afterwards. So, yeah, I really appreciate the the book and and I'm wishing you all the best with it. Well, I thank you very much. There are very kind words, and I I hope there is a movement that would be wonderful. What what I've noticed for certain is people like myself looking back on their careers and seeing the the positives and negatives and talking. You know, mental health is becoming really front and center because my career supported my mental health. I had, there was never anyone trying to intimidate me or undercut my performance. If anything, it was the opposite. And so that's, you know, that's what I hope people get from it. And I hope there's a movement going in that direction and I appreciate that you appreciated it. So thank you for reaching out, Steve. (laughs) 
Wasn't there a chapter about appreciation? We've just done a double double appreciation. <laughs> Grat- yeah, gratitude. gratitude. I'm, I'm grateful yeah. for you. You're grateful for me. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much, Duff. Thanks, Steve. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Duff. You can follow him on Twitter at Duff Gibson. His website is darkhorseathletic.ca and you can find details of the book Tower of Sport on there. I've also included links in the show notes for his new podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve. We're also on at support underscore champs. We're on LinkedIn and Instagram. Look us up on supporting champions. We've also got our YouTube channel. The links are in the show notes. Take a look. Hopefully it's valuable content for you.